Today's scripture reading will be Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall the saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. It is great to be back with you again for yet another Lord's Day. I was thinking about it this week that it wasn't that long ago when there was a lot of uncertainty around whether or not we'd be able to meet week to week, whether we'd have a place or whether we'd be permitted or whether it was safe to. And I rejoice that the Lord in His kindness has given us such great consistency that we can meet with one another without danger or without any issue to worship, to sing, to pray, and to sit under the teaching of God's Word. So let us never take this for granted, but let us be a people who remembers God's faithfulness in the life of our church. So before we go to our text this morning, will you join me in a brief prayer? Lord, we thank you for this morning that you have given us, Lord. We thank you for the hymns that we have sung, for the prayers that we have prayed. For, Lord, that is our mission and our purpose here this morning, is that you would be glorified, that it would not be about our consumption of what we can gain or glean, but it would be about fixing our eyes upon you and leaving this place renewed and encouraged by what a great and glorious God we serve. Lord, I pray that you'd be with the preaching of your word this morning, Lord, that you would take this weak vessel and do your great work in and through me for your glory. And it's in your name that I pray. Amen. For those of you who know me, you'll know that I'm a very routine person. I am very rhythmic in almost everything that I do. Uh, The phrase, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, is very applicable to me. I have a set way of doing most things in my life, and I kind of carry on in that way. And one of the things that is just a common practice for me throughout the week is that whenever I break from work to take a lunch break... I always listen to the same sports radio show. I've listened to it for years. I enjoy this particular commentator. So I'll go downstairs, make a sandwich, heat up leftovers, whatever it may be, and then I'll come and sit at my desk and turn on this sports radio station just as a nice reprieve from the thoughts and stresses of the day. And as I was getting ready to pull up this uh, radio show earlier this week, I saw a video next to the link on YouTube that I normally click to listen to this sports show. Now, I don't consider myself much of a clickbaity person, um, and truth be told, uh, once I described the video to you, I still don't know why I clicked on it, because the link was, Baby Eats Ice Cream for the First Time. Uh, I am somebody who actually does not like ice cream. I know for many of you, the sermon just ended right there, uh, but it's just something I could do without if I lived the rest of my life, and I'm not somebody who sits around watching cute baby videos all day, but for some reason, uh, the algorithm did its work, and I clicked on the video. And what I saw was this baby who was sitting in its high chair at the kitchen table being fed by mom and dad the normal things that many of us who have kids probably fed our kids as they were infants. Pureed, carrots, yams, peas, just ugh, stuff. And this baby is just kind of sitting there monotonously like taking the spoonful as mom and dad feeds it to him. 
Well, all of a sudden, out of frame, the other parent holds this massive ice cream cone right in front of the kid's face. It has two scoops of some flavor on top of it, and the kid clearly has never seen any of this before. So he's kind of sitting there, you know, eating the peas, eating the carrots. This, you know, this ice cream cone gets introduced right in front of his face, and he goes to take a bite of it or a lick or some hybrid of the, the two, much in the same way that he was eating the peas and carrots. So he takes a bite, and for a second, he's just kind of like this. Then all of a sudden, his eyes light up, and he reaches out, and he lunges for the ice cream cone. And the parents are trying to pull it back, so he just doesn't, you know, smush the whole thing all over his face. And I was thinking that here is this kid who has eaten nothing but pureed vegetables, something I know we all love, for his entire life. And in that moment, his whole paradigm shifted. He was awakened to the fact that there were new foods, new tastes, new flavors, sugar that existed in the world. And it changed him in that moment. And so, in the same way, what is the world's response when they encounter a citizen of heaven? Are we just like the carrots and peas and yams and things that the world offers and provides to the world? Or are we something sweet, something savory, something gloriously bright, and something different? The main idea for our text in our passage this morning is that God calls citizens of heaven to do good works in the world for His glory. So if you're not already there, I'd encourage you to turn to Matthew 5. Having God's Word open in front of you will be helpful as we work through this passage this morning. So just by way of context, the past couple of weeks we've been in the Gospel of Matthew. We looked at Jesus preaching a message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He calls His disciples, and He begins the Sermon on the Mount, which we looked at last week, talking about who we are in Christ, what is our identity as citizens of heaven. And we become citizens of heaven, not by some self-transformation or 12-step program or, you know, intense yoga meditation, but it is only through the power and work of Jesus that is alive in us. And so, just as we looked at last week, we are called to be poor in spirit, to be people who mourn over sin, people who are meek, hunger and thirst for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, and peacemakers. And so now, Jesus turns His attention to not only talk about who we are, but what we are to be and the impact that we are to have in this world. And so we'll begin in verse 13 of our text this morning where Jesus is speaking to the crowds and He says, you are the salt of the earth. And so Jesus, like I said, just got done telling the crowds who they are as citizens of heaven. And now he says what their citizenship should be marked by. It should be marked by being people who are salty, being people who impact the world. But how are they to do this? Well, the answer is obvious, by being salt. Now, in the ancient world, salt had many different purposes, but there are two that are directly linked to our passage this morning as far as the uses of salt that can help us gain an understanding of what Jesus is getting at here. The first is that salt was a preserving agent. Back in the ancient times, they didn't have refrigerators, vacuum sealers, or chest freezers that they stored out in their garage, and so in order to preserve their food, in order to preserve meat, they had to rub it in salt so that it would keep from decaying and it would last longer. And so the fact that the Lord calls this out and says that you are salt 
that we are to live as a preserving agent in the world says something about the earth in which we live, and it's that the earth is decaying, that just like food, the world around us is progressively getting worse and worse, the story that has been true from the beginning of time. And that is why we are called to be salt, to be a part of its preservation. For who else this side of heaven will represent what is good, what is righteous, and what is holy? But how are we to be about the work of preserving the earth? And we must keep this simple, and it's just simply to be salty in everything that we do. But the ingredients of salt, so we understand what that means, are what we looked at last week in the Beatitudes, that we are to be salt that is defined by people who are poor in spirit, who recognize that we bring nothing to the table, that we mourn over the state of sin in our lives and in the life of the world, that we are meek, people who hunger and thirst for righteousness, people who are merciful and peacemakers. And the fruit of a life that is to be lived in this way are to be the fruits of the Spirit that we see in Galatians, that we are to demonstrate and exhibit in all things that we do, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Like I said, we must keep this simple, and it sounds simple to say that we are to be these things and live as these things, but when push comes to shove, it is significantly harder to do. One of the other defining characteristics of salt is that it is felt. It is not always seen, but it is always recognized and unmistakable when it is encountered. Our salt is not to be an aspect of personal holiness alone, but it is to be active in all that we do and in everywhere that we are. As individuals, we're expected to be contributing members to the societies in which we live. We are expected to be involved in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in schools, and even in politics. But God does not just turn us loose to influence these things in any way that we choose. For many of you may have heard an employer that says, hey, find a way to get that project done on time. I don't care how you do it, just get it done. Or maybe for those of you that played sports, you might have had a coach that came up to you and just said, hey, find a way. I don't care how you win. I don't care how you make the pass or the tackle but find a way to get it done. Even as parents, sometimes we can say that to our kids, right? Where we say, just find a way to behave. I don't care how you do it, just obey. But Jesus doesn't say this. He says, I am the way. That these characteristics we see in the Beatitudes, these fruits of the Spirit are things that come and flow directly from Him, and He says, you are to live and salt and influence this world by being as I am by living out in my likeness. He is our only way unto salvation, and Jesus is the only way, the only model by which we are to look at and live. We are to live as He lived, to do as He did, and to pursue what He pursued. I think an incredible example of this is in the story of William Wilberforce. Many of you will be familiar with the name. He was an advocate for the abolition of the slave trade and slavery in England. He spent much of his life serving in Parliament, working towards this end. And for 20 years, he labored at this pursuit, being young and sick, and yet 
It took 20 years to see it accomplished, and then it saw another 30 years before it was officially abolished, which in the Lord's kindness unto Wilberforce was three days before he died. Wilberforce was known for his deep faith in connecting everything that he did back to the good news of the gospel. In fact, in his biography, it shows that Wilberforce always sought to direct personal conversations to the question of eternity, that he would keep lists of friends' names, and he would make notes about how he might encourage them in their faith. And one of the ways that Wilberforce provides such a great and powerful example of what it looks like to be salt and light in our influence in the world as he was very deeply embedded in the political world is through one of his prayers that survives him in his journal. And, and I quote, O Lord, purify my soul from all of its stains. Warm my heart with the love of Thee. Animate my sluggish nature and fix my inconsistency and volatility that I may not weary in doing well. It is very tempting to engage in pursuing political agendas, advancing Christian nationalism, or reforming all parts of our life, because that is how the culture has redefined what Christianity is. It's a bunch of people seeking to do good things in the world. But this is a backwards understanding of what God calls us to in this passage. We are to have lives that are marked by our DNA, by the fruit of the Spirit that lives inside of us, and from this life comes our salt and our influence and our felt impact on the world. It's us saying that I will do things God's way in a way that honors Him, acknowledges His kingship, and is in accordance with His will. For God cares just as much about the method as He does about the outcome. For God, the ends don't justify the means. It's not about doing the right thing the wrong way. It's about doing all things God's way to His glory in accordance with His will for the end purpose of being that we stand before Him and hear Him say, well done, good and faithful servant. We will not stand before Him and hear something like this where He says, well, you brought abortion to an end on earth. That's fantastic. Well done. However, you looked nothing like me while doing it. But yet, I'll let you in because you did a good thing. He says, no. Live as I have called you to live as a new creation so that we may be salt, impacting and honoring him and living as faithful ambassadors for him until he calls us home. Salt is a preserving agent, and we are to be about the preservation of the earth. The second thing which we see in salt, and I won't spend too long on this point because I feel that it is fairly simple in its understanding, is that we are to be a seasoning, that we are to expose people to the joys and flavors of heaven, that just as Scripture calls us to taste and see that the Lord is good in our life, people should be able to taste and see the goodness of God. And so while we can look at these things and we can look at our calling of how we are to live in the world, Jesus gives us a warning in the second part of verse 13 where he says, if salt has lost its taste, then how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. If salt, like Andrew prayed, is not being used, used for its purpose or not having its impact, then it's not truly salt. 
Salt cannot be anything that which it is, and so if it does not have that salty quality, then it is not salt. And later, in this same sermon that Jesus is in the midst of preaching, maybe just moments later after he uttered the words that we're studying this morning, he utters one of the most haunting words in all of Scripture, where he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. People who proclaim that they are individuals seeking to live their life in their own way simply under the banner of Jesus is not true Christ-following discipleship. It is like we talked about last week. It is more of people looking at things as an association than a true abandonment and pursuit of Jesus in all things. For in Christ we have been transformed, made new, as a new creation. And this is how we are to know if we are salt, is if we do the will of our Father who is in heaven. And so does saltiness mark your life? Does the saltiness of your life impact the world around you? Is it in every water cooler conversation? Is it in every order that you place at Starbucks? Is it in every political conversation that you engage in? or maybe even more prodding, is it present in the conversations that you have with a hard-to-love family member, with the challenging personality that you find in the church, or with a neighbor who drives you crazy? Are you marked by the characteristics of being a citizen of heaven? Do people look at you and know that you are not of this world, but that you were made for another place because of he who lives inside of you? Dear brothers and sisters, let us be known for our saltiness here at CRC. So Jesus moves on from his metaphor of being the salt of the earth, and in verse 14, he transitions to being the light of the world. He says, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. If salt is the felt work of the citizens of heaven, then light is the seen work of the citizens of heaven. Our light should stand out boldly in contrast to the darkness, which is what formerly defined us. For our light is the light of the gospel, that there is nothing good in us. We are darkness, doing unfruitful works and living in sin, but Jesus, the true light, came into the world to save and redeem His people. And it is through His transformation that the old has passed away and the new has come, that we are true disciples in Christ, marked by the Beatitudes and the fruits of the Spirit that can be visible in our life, that we are now called light. One of God's chosen means of revealing Himself to a dark world is through His people. That our light as disciples is meant to illuminate the source of our light. That as John 8, 12 says, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the light of the world, and in that light is life. But that light is also meant to provide visibility to the path. We must walk in the light. The first John 1, 7 says, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, 
and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all our sin. The world is to see us and to follow Jesus. They are to see us and glorify in His name, and they are to look at us and understand clearly what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And just as Jesus says that nobody lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket to hide, our light also is to be seen and visible to all. For if a light exists under a basket, or just like salt that has no saltiness, it is of no use. For true light, true discipleship is not fulfilled by private personal holiness, but it must include public witness and exposure. The goal of a publicly lived life is not so that people would emulate us or give glory to us, but that they would recognize the source by which our light comes from. And this must mean that we are active in the world, that we are active in being fishers of men, for this is the call of true discipleship. Our light has a clear purpose, not just to enlighten us, but to enlighten the world that the world would see that it is Jesus who makes all things new and that He is willing and stands ready to take them from darkness and bring them into the light. And dear brothers and sisters, if that is you today where you have heard these words before, maybe even fresh for the first time, and you are seeing even through the Word that you are living in a life of darkness, know that Jesus stands ready to bring you into glorious light. And I would encourage you not to delay, but come and talk to me or anyone that's been on the stage at any point in the service. We would love to talk and pray with you more about this. For that is my story, that is so many of our stories, that he has taken us from being children of, light, of darkness into being children of light. And so what does this mean practically for our lives? We understand what is implied, but what should be applied? Well, Jesus makes it clear, and He says, let your light shine before others. Our light should shine brightly for the lost, for we know that in Jesus there is no darkness, but the world is often described as being dark or darkened. So when a believer, a citizen of heaven, walks on the scene, the light of our life should overwhelm those who are in darkness. It should be much like when we stumble out of bed at two in the morning to use the bathroom and all the lights are off and we walk in and we flip on the light and it's just, it's so staggering, it takes us back. That is the effect that our light of our life should have on the watching world. For our light, the light that it is in us is meant to drown out the darkness. Now practically, this does not mean that we just start walking around to everybody that we see and calling out every single sin that may exist in their life. There is a time and a place for that. But more I would ask, does your life give a silent rebuke to the lost? For if we know that light drowns out all darkness, then as people who are in darkness come and encounter the light, there will be a silent conviction. Maybe something that you never know about, but something that they understand. Maybe you've even seen this where you're talking, where a group of people is talking and they might be gossiping about somebody and you who are in Christ who has forsaken that sin walks up and they immediately stop because they say, no, this isn't right to do. He or she doesn't participate in that. Our light 
should drown out the darkness. Is your light so glorious, so desirable, so exposing that sin does not want to dwell anywhere near it? For by nature, we as men are lovers of darkness. For in darkness, we can hide our sin. We can pursue all kinds of evil. And we are left to do whatever is right in our own eyes. But as Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, he says, For you at one time were darkness, but now you are light. Walk as children of light. Discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. This is our holy calling, is that the light of our life would expose the darkness in the world. So when we look at this passage, so many people will walk through it and make it an evangelistic message, a message that is only looking outward at the lost. And while certainly, as we've just looked at, our lights need to shine brightly for the lost, for those that are not in Christ, but I believe that God's call to be light extends beyond this. For if our light is only to be turned on when we know that there are lost or unbelievers around and it can be turned off in other moments, then what separates us from the Pharisees? What makes us any different than people who do these things for public show and not because it is just who we are as new creations in Christ? But I want to look at some other examples of where our light ought to shine. And the first one that I want to look at is that our light should shine brightly in our home. Husbands, you are to love your wives. Wives, you are to honor your husbands. Your children are to call you blessed, and your husband is to praise you for your conduct. Parents, you are to train your children in the way that they should go so that they may not depart when they are older. There's a saying in ministry that much of ministry is caught and not taught. We are called to be bright lights to our children. And children... You are called to honor and obey your parent, for this command is accompanied with a promise. A charge is given to the elders and to the leaders of the church that your home would be in order with all dignity, because if your house is not in order, then how will the church be in order? We see the supreme importance of shining our light amongst our home and amongst our families, and it should shine brightly there. It is easy to shine bright when the lights are the brightest, right? When we're in those moments of leading a Bible study or maybe we encounter a lost person that comes up to us at a restaurant, it's easy to turn it on and to be all gung-ho for those things. But it's far more challenging to be consistent and to shine brightly in the mundane and in the familiar. What a testament it would be that after 50-plus years of marriage or 50-plus years of raising children or being a grandparent, that our families look at us and say, you are the clearest picture of Jesus that I see in my life. But this is hard work, isn't it? For it is hard for our light to shine brightly when our kids wake us up at 2 in the morning for something super trivial after we've had a hard day or a hard week. It's hard to shine a bright light when maybe a family member belittles us or disrespects us. It can be hard to be a light when your wife is hard to lead or when your husband is hard to follow. It can be hard 
to be a light, when we have an opportunity to respond to a situation with anger or rage because we feel convicted that that is the right response, it is incredibly hard to respond with tenderness and love and to let our light shine by acting differently than the world might respond to the same situation. It is when we respond in a way that is contrary to how the world responds that our light begins to shine all the more brightly. I've heard it said before that when stress is is applied to somebody or to somebody's life, their true character comes out. Wouldn't that be glorious if that were true of us, that when the lights are brightest and things are hardest and most stressful, that the light of Christ shines most brightly in our lives? When we live out the Beatitudes, these are the good works that will cause our families to give glory unto the Lord. And the second place that our light should shine brightly is here at CRC and in the life of our church. Hebrews 12.1 says that since you are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us so that we may run our race well. Now the cloud of witnesses is talking about the saints of old who have come before us, but here in our midst we are surrounded by saints as one of God's good and gracious gifts to us is that we do not sojourn in this world alone, but we do it together. That we may encourage and spur one another on towards love and good deeds to forsake sin and to be salt and light to the earth. That as we run our race, we may encourage one another well in doing so. I saw this example lived out so beautifully in the life of our beloved church member, Earl. For when Earl got sick, the Carr family and the Kennedy family took him in and embraced him. He lived with them in their home where they were daily lights to him, encouraging him as the finish line was visible in his race, that they would not allow him just to taper off at the end, but they pressed in and encouraged him to keep running. They let their light shine brightly and so many other members of the church that visited and encouraged Earl during that season. And at his memorial service, the sweet moment where we celebrated such a beloved man, that it was almost as if all of us were standing and issuing and giving him over to our Lord, saying, we ran the race with him and we ran it well, and now he has no need to run any longer, for he is with you. May this be what we desire to do for one another, that as the Lord allows, that we would constantly be a church that is handing one another over to the glories of the presence of God. But we also see a great example of what does this salt and light look like in the encouragement of a believer in the example of the early church. And I'll read this passage for us in Acts Chapter 2, starting in verse 42, a familiar passage to many, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings. They were distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, Breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. 
we see that this is the hard work of being a disciple of Christ, that we are called to forsake all earthly comforts, all things that we have, and that can be a, a physical possession comfort, and it can also just be our alone time, our solitude. In this early church, we saw it's indicative of everyone that was here, was selling what they had, meeting together, praying, encouraging, fellowshipping, hosting, all of these things. The tendency of that could be to be very discouraging if you're one person in a church of hundreds, or in this case, thousands that is doing that. But how encouraging and life-giving and energizing to see 3,000 people doing this together. All the same, being encouraged by the brother and sister who is standing next to them in the way that they are pursuing what God has called them to do. There's no indication that God called them or commanded them to do any of these things in particular, but this is the fruit that flows through being a new creation from who we are in the Beatitudes as people who are made to be like Christ. We, as a church, should allow our lights to shine brightly for one another so that we can live out the love of Christ not only to the lost, not only in our home, but in the life of our church. And our text this morning concludes in verse 16 by saying, in that same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, your life lived like Jesus, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the aim of all that we are talking about. It is not so that people would see us and praise us. It is not so that we would feel better about ourselves, that we are good people, or that we have done good with the life that we have been given, but it is so that all glory be to God the Father, for He is worth it. He is worthy of it, and it is because of His glorious grace that we are able to do any of these things that we have talked about this morning or the past few weeks. And what I want to leave you with this morning is a story that I read um, from a book that I was, I was reading this week, and it's the story of a pastor. I believe he's in uh, Tennessee, and he comes from a long line of, of pastors, and his father was dying. And so they gathered around him, and he recounted just a very brief excerpt of their experience with him on his last day, and I was so encouraged by it. I will do my best not to cry, uh, but I think it's a powerful story and a helpful reminder to send us as we go from this place. And he writes, early on Sunday morning, July 22, 2007, my dad woke up from his hospital room in Newport Beach. He knew it was finally the day of his release from this life. He had the nurse call in his family. His wife, Janny, and I, or my wife, Janny, and I were far away in Ireland for ministry that day. We didn't know that this was happening back home. But the family gathered at Dad's bedside. They read scripture. They sang hymns. And Dad spoke a word of patriarchal blessing and admonishment to each one, a message suited to encourage and to guide. He pronounced over all of them the blessing of Aaron. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. 
and then he quietly fell asleep. Later, I asked my sister my dad's message to me, and his message was this, tell Bud, ministry isn't everything, Jesus is. Take out the word ministry and substitute it for whatever it is in your life that it needs to be. Put family, put career, put money, put accolades, put accomplishments. Blank isn't everything. Jesus is. Let us be a people and a church who live to make His glory known in the world and to have His glory visible in our life that they may not look at us, but that they may glorify our Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the light of the world, that as we celebrate in this Christmas season, that that light has come to dwell amongst us. Lord, we rejoice, for apart from Christ, we would have been left to darkness. But in the work of Jesus, we have found life, and we are now commissioned, called, made to be salt and light in this earth. Lord, I pray that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, that you would help us to be bold and courageous as we do all things in this life, not for selfish ambition, but for your glory. Lord, I pray that everyone here this morning would know who they are in Jesus, that they would know what Jesus has called them to do in this world, and that we would spend every day through good moments or through persecution, living, demonstrating, proclaiming your glory in all the earth. 